0: This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in The original podcast for the complete houndsman. A podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Uniting houndsmen across the globe, from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. way to start a podcast this week. We still live in the greatest nation that the world has ever known. It's going to be a very special week this week. We have Veterans Day on the 11th and my Marine Corps birthday is November 10th. So if you see a Marine, thank them. If you see a veteran, thank them. It's because of their sacrifices and their dedication to service, that we enjoy the life that we have in the United States of America. And I would even go as far as to say across the globe, the United States has been a global force that has secured freedom, democracy in every clime and place, just like the United States Marine Corps, hymn states, in every clime and place. We've been there. Air Force, Navy, Army, Marine, Coast Guard. This is the week, folks. Every year at Memorial Day, I see a lot of stuff popping up about thanking veterans, but that's when we memorialize our veterans. On Veterans Day is the day that we celebrate their service. So thanks for letting me editorialize about that just a little bit. Regardless of what the news is telling you, we're still free. We still live in the United States of America. We have to be diligent, and we have to make sure that we keep that freedom, and our children and our grandchildren and our children's children can enjoy the freedoms in this country. Freedom is very important to us. We didn't do a pre-roll this week we um, because I just did your pre-roll with the national anthem and that editorial about freedom in our country and um i just want to spend a little bit of time this episode me talking to you houndsmen across the world i want to talk about a few issues today i want to answer some questions that i'm I've, I've received on social media that seth and lauren have um have received and and things that we have discussed off air or off the podcast and uh, just have a conversation. You know, one of the things that goes with our freedom, freedom isn't free. Okay. It's not expected. It's not going to be uh, something that we can put on a shelf and just take down and open it up when we need to enjoy it. It is an ongoing battle to secure that freedom. And as that applies to us on a micro scale, we're talking about hound rights. And um, I've been seeing a lot of different things popping up and questions, I get asked questions all the time in emails about how to start hound organizations, how to uh, secure the rights to free cast hounds. I uh, get get uh, messages about advice on how to combat issues in different states. So I just want to tell you that that the main thing that I see all the time is everybody wants to go out and start a new hound organization. Well, why start a new one if you've got an existing one in your state? That is a lot of work, and I want to tell I, I want to just spend a minute here and tell you. The things that it takes to start an organization like that. For one thing, there is a huge uh, process for establishing a nonprofit organization. Uh, You've got to do all kinds of paperwork, there's a bunch of legalese, there's all kinds of things that you have to do in order to be a legitimate organization. Whether it be a religious organization, the Boy Scouts of America, I don't care what it is, or a hound organization. There's just certain things you have to do. You know, just, um, it it all starts with with like-minded people coming together for a common cause. And I want to talk about that a little bit. When it comes to securing our freedoms as houndsmen in the United States, we have to put aside the petty differences. I don't care if you hunt a poodle, a walker, a blue tick, a plot, whatever it is. You know, if if a person wants to continue to free cast hounds in this country and do it unrestricted from uh, oppressive government interference, if you want to be able to make a stand to that, you have to put that aside. There is way, way, way too much jealousy in our ranks. There's jealousy about who's hunting in this area, uh, about what kind of license plates you have on your vehicle while you're out there hunting. Now, I'll give you an example of this real quick. Okay, so I just got back from Montana, was out there for a couple months. I was working. Okay, I've got dogs with me out there. These dogs, my main goal there was to work. It wasn't to be hunting or anything like that. So I simply loaded up one of my plot hounds, had him tied in the back of the truck and took him up into the national forest and dropped him out on the road and was letting him run down the road to burn off some steam. He'd been sitting in the kennel. He was stir crazy. He needed a break. So I've got him out on the road. I meet another person on that road who has also got a hound in the back of their truck. Okay. He asked me what I'm doing. I'm like, Roding a dog. That's all I was doing was roding them, keeping them in shape, keeping them going. Within a week, I got word that I was being accused of trying to bear hunt illegally in Montana with one dog. Now, I'm not saying that people don't have a one dog, one dog bear pack. I know they're out there, but I haven't got one. I can promise you that. So, Why would you do that? As I did some digging and did some research on this individual, he's more worried about another houndsman with an out-of-state plate hunting in a place where he hunts than he was about anything else. Okay, he had a hound in the back of his truck. His dog had a tracking collar on it. Was he bear hunting? No, I never suspected that. I never suspected that he was doing that at all. So at what point do we put aside the petty jealousy and come together? There are other things too, okay? There are things about, well, this person doesn't do it like I do it. Or if you get back east, okay, competition hunting has set up a uh, situation where people are competing. So we draw out on a cast. We go out. You don't like the way I handled my dog. You don't like the way I made a call as a judge. You don't like um, the fact that the, the, the judge's call went in my favor. So now you've got some kind of grudge against that person. And that's why you won't get involved in a hound organization, because you don't like the people. Well, let me ask you this. Are you, do you like the people who are trying to take your rights? Because if you don't stand together, if we don't stand together, we're all going to hang separately, Each one of us. So I want to talk to, that's why I'm talking to you today about unity. Okay, if you've got a hound organization, put aside your personal differences. We talk about humility. Last last podcast, we had uh, Casey Stutzman on here and we talked about humility. And I'm here to tell you folks that houndsmen in general need to practice a little more humility i doubt you're you're leading the greatest hound that ever took a breath i doubt that i'm leading the greatest hound that ever took a breath so if we just humble ourselves and realize that the relationships we build the or the the bonds we form are stronger than the ego that your dog's trying to carry around okay he can't carry that ego There's an old saying that a man's ego is a heavy burden for a hound to bear. And that is true. But man, we have got to figure out some common ground. So if you've got a state organization and maybe it needs help, be the guy. And I'll refer back to a a quote from the Bible. In the book of Isaiah, there's a passage that says, And I heard the voice of the Lord calling, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I replied, Here my Lord, send me. That was the prophet Isaiah stepping up. He heard a voice and there's a life lesson in that. There is a call out there for you to be involved. Five people in your state can't run your hound organizations. It's going to take everybody on board working together be willing to step up and say, yes, I can do that. Yes, I can flip burgers. Yes, I can serve food. Yes, I can judge a cast. Yes, I can go out and find prizes for a benefit auction. All those things are so important. You may not be the guy that that gets all the glory for it, but that's what humility is. You're doing the right thing, even though you may not be recognized for it. So get involved in your hound organizations. You don't need to go out and start a new one. Find the one that exists. Get involved. Try to make a, cha- make a change from the inside out. And you are the change, okay? You are the one that re- represents that change. So get involved in those hound organizations. I can't stress that enough. There's never been a more important time for us to do that than now. And I know I've got some some negative press lately. About spending too much time talking about this, but for crying out loud, how can we not talk about this issue? if we are not organized, if we don't have a battle plan to stand up for our rights? What other issue is out there that is more important to talk about? Nobody cares about your world champion Coon dog other than other hounds people. That's it. Nobody cares about your epic bear race on Facebook, other than other hounds people. State legislators don't care. Fish and Wildlife managers don't care about that. But if we organize, and we stand together, and we make differences with organizations like Freedom Hunters, uh, 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 Hunt of a Lifetime, uh, any any other organization out there that has got this common goal and i'll put backcountry hunters and anglers in there you know a lot of people will sit back and they'll say ah backcountry hunters and anglers are shutting me out of places where i can't drive my truck well put your boots on okay because i can tell you that that organizations like that are developing political clout very quickly and they are setting the stage to keep hunting on the landscape Whether you like their politics or not, whether you like their leadership or not, you have to be aligned and research those groups and get involved in groups like that. It used to be groups, and it still is, it's still groups like the National Wild Turkey Federation and the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and Ducks Unlimited. It's not good enough to sit back and complain that they're not working for your interest. Why should they? Why should they work for for our interests if we're not willing to go and assist them, if we're not willing to build alliances with them? So I would encourage all of you, all of us as houndsmen, to stand up together and make a united front to preserve the rights that we have left, whether it's in Australia, whether it's in Canada, Norway, South Africa, the United States. We all have a common interest here, and that is to preserve the legacy of hound pursuits, hunting game with hounds. And it's not just for entertainment. We have to be able to talk the talk. We got to be able to have the narrative, the, the vocabulary to speak intelligently to wildlife managers and legislators and people that we are depending on to ensure that we have those rights in the future. You've gotta be able to talk about why hound pursuit is so important to wildlife management. You've gotta know the seven precepts of the North America model for wildlife conservation. If your hound organization is not capitalizing on that or teaching that to their membership, you're mistaken. We've gotta be able to talk and build that relationship with the u.s sportsman's alliance that's out there every day looking keeping their feelers out knowing what's going on in legislative bodies across the united states we've got to be there folks there's no more time we have to be involved so that's my that's my plea i'm i'm pleading with you to put aside any petty differences that you may have had with other houndsmen and do it for yourself. Do it for your brothers and sisters that are free casting hounds and make a difference. Do it today, folks. Look that up. Okay, I'm going to shift gears on us a little bit. I want to talk about hounds and I'm going to talk to you about the noses on these hounds it just amazes me (laughs) i you know i i listen to a lot of different podcasts i listen to different so-called experts on hounds and um it amazes me that the most basic principle of hunting with a hound is so misunderstood and that's the nose. You know, you see those comments, probably one of, one of the hottest comment um, conversation starters on the internet is about cold nose hounds. And I'll just set this up a little bit. I spent almost a decade being a professional canine handler. You've heard that story. You've heard me talk about that in the past. But I want to get down into the nitty-gritty of noses, scent, and and what scent is, and a dog's scenting ability, and things like that. Okay, our listeners have been asking for more technical podcasts. They've been asking for um, some more information. And scenting of your hound is the key to everything. You can't train a hound if you don't understand what that dog is trying to tell you. Okay, so I want to start by just breaking this down. I want to, I want to present this information in a way that is going to be uh, uh, not completely nerdy, but there are some technical terms that we're going to have to talk about here uh, so we understand how this dog's nose works. Uh, I also want to break it down in a way that's transferable to the average houndsman so that they can start picking up and seeing some of the things that are happening while they're out there hunting and by no means do i have all of the answers i don't i'm just simply a person that has had some education that i overlaid on almost over three decades of hunting hounds okay so i was fortunate enough to see things in hounds and then be provided training on a dog's olfactory senses, that's your sense of smell, and be able to relate that back to what was actually going on with my hound. And and so I see things like, what's a cold nose? My dog's slick tree and persimmon trees. Hey, it's springtime and it seems like my dog can't run a track. Uh, the f- weather changed and uh, it's extremely dry. Can an eastern hound run a track in arid dry ground conditions? I'm not talking bare ground. I'm talking dry ground. So I want to talk about all of that stuff, but we have to start by understanding what's going on with your hound and how that nose works. We know how garments work. There's people out there that can tear down a truck and rebuild the motor uh, to get them back and forth to the woods, but yet something about that hound's nose we don't understand and what we do is we ask other houndsmen that don't know either and then we get this pickle bear wisdom that comes out and we believe it we believe what they're saying so let's break this down a little bit i just want to spend some time here and we'll start with a very basic thing a dog's nose okay so a dog has the ability to scent And smell things that we as humans have no idea okay to give you an idea to give you some example of how much more powerful a dog's nose is than a human's nose let's just talk about the human olfactory sense for right now okay so a human has about five million scent receptors in your nose Have you ever walked in somewhere and smelled something that reminded you of another time in your life? Maybe it was your grandmother's biscuits. And you remember as a kid the pleasantry of smelling those biscuits when you went to grandma's house on a Saturday morning. Um, That is how powerful the sense of smell is in humans. It can bring back memories that are decades old. You know, even 30 years after you smell those biscuits at grandma's, you walk in somewhere else and you smell a biscuits ba- You smell biscuits baking and it takes you back to grandma's house, okay? So f- that's only 5 million scent receptors in the human. A dog has between 125 and twenty-five and two 200 million scent receptors. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And it's beyond our comprehension. I mean, if you can see me right now, I mean, I've got my hands on the side of my head and it's like, poof, you know, blowing the top of my head off when I try to, when I try to break that down and understand what that dog is able to smell, what their scent capabilities or scenting capabilities actually aren't. So there's three main reasons why a dog has such an acute sense of smell. And I just want to cover that real quick. Okay. The first reason is to increase production, reproduction. Okay. Increase their numbers. Maintain the numbers and a dog's ability to reproduce sexually reproduce so that's one decrease their enemies a dog is able to smell enemies and to decrease those that's another reason why they smell to to either give them alarm or put them into pursuit mode to eliminate that threat and the third reason is to find food okay three reasons Increase reproduction, decrease enemies, and to find food. Okay, so that's why a dog smells. Now let's transfer that back over to our hound, okay? When we're talking about hounds, let's dwell on number two, decrease enemies. Our hounds are hardwired to pursue a certain game, um, to catch game. Most of them. There's a lot of concentrated breeding. So, what we're trying to capitalize on is a thing called prey drive. Prey drive. That is a dog's desire to run and catch what it's being trained for. Okay? Prey drive. And I want you to remember that that term, prey drive. Because drive actually is a genetic instinct that is bred into your hound. So the sense of smell triggers that instinct to come to the surface. So you've got to have both. You've got to have the ability to smell, and then you've got to have that desire to pursue. And you put those two things together, and that is what causes a hound... To have the desire to use its nose for either uh, sexual reproduction, threats, or food. Real basic stuff there, but remember prey drive. It's key. We want to talk about the parts of a dog's nose. We don't want to talk about, we don't talk often enough about the reason why the dog is using its nose. You can take a bloodhound who has got the most, one of the most, one of the most developed olfactory senses of any dog in the world. Okay. But if he lacks prey drive, he will not chase anything. You can take another dog such as a boxer. You've heard me about, talk about Roxy, the boxer, the the total utilitarian dog she's a coon dog by day she's a lap dog she does all these other things but a boxer has a very short nasal plane its ability to scent isn't nearly what our hounds ability to scent is however that boxer will track raccoons she will chase deer Uh, she will track my son to his tree stand if we don't put her up So, the dog's ability to scent is there. So, even with diminished scenting scenting abilities, and we'll talk about the anatomy of the nose here in a second, but she has a diminished ability to detect scent compared to our hounds, she is still capable of doing these things, and it's because of that drive. So, this is what I would say. When we talk about cold-nosed dogs... What we're really talking about is an an, an anomaly of a hound to have a high prey drive, okay? Those dogs that are characterized with these cold noses are very high in drive, okay? So, when we turn that dog loose, we could have a dog that has the most unbelievable ability to smell and detect scent but if it does not have the drive to try to work that track out stay with that track move that track until the quarry is jumped and treed you have nothing okay so let's talk about the anatomy of a hound's nose we talked about prey drive the anatomy of a dog's nose and we'll, we'll keep this hound break based because there are some distinct differences in our hounds than there are from some of the other breeds, pet breeds, terrier breeds, things like that. Part of that can be attributed to the absolute miraculous selective breeding that some of our that some breeders have done over centuries to develop that olfactory sense in our hounds it all starts in selective breeding okay now i'm gonna i'm gonna back that up here in a second but just like we can breed for color We can uh, breed for attitude. We can breed for mouth. We can also breed for nose. Okay. We can breed for nose. If you take, cause the nose, even though we talked about prey drive, they've got to have that prey drive. They've got to have something to go with it. So this is going to be like a soup, like a stew. And we're going to talk about the ingredients of the perfect scent stew. All right, so we talked about prey drive as our first ingredient. Now we're going to break down the anatomy of a dog's nose. So we talked about the reason why a dog smells, and we're going to talk about the different parts. And this is where it's going to get a little bit nerdy. So so hang on there, but, you know, anytime you get into something technical, then it gets a little bit nerdy. Whether you're talking about camshafts, um, you know, rod travel, pistons, whatever, and a motor or you're gonna talk about a dog's nose. If you're into it, you're into it. Gearheads know that stuff. As a houndsman, you need to know about a dog's nose. That's just all there is to it. So, let's talk about the anatomy of a dog's nose. And there's a couple different things that a dog does with its nose. One is they just simply breathe, okay? So, they're they're bringing air in through their nostrils, it goes to their lungs, uh, the, the oxygen is, uh, transferred to the blood cell, and then that goes out to the muscles, and it oxygenates the blood, okay? So when a dog breathes, it's a very smooth path from, from when it enters the nostrils back down into the lungs, and then it exhales, okay? And it gets rid of contaminants, carbon monoxide, uh, any pollutants in the air, things like that. So it's a natural thing for life. We know that we do the same thing, but a dog also uses that nose to sniff. Okay. And sniffing is different than breathing. Sniffing is the deliberate intake of air into the nasal cavity to detect scent. Okay. So when when you're thinking about this, think about your dog's nose behind its nostrils, below the bridge of its nose and above the roof of its mouth, there is an open chamber there. And as they sniff, and I want everybody to do this right now. I want you to go, I want you to sniff. Not smell, but sniff. Okay, that's an abrupt intake of air. And when you bring that air in, that air did not go to your lungs. That air went into your nasal cavity. And your dog does the same thing. It sniffs. So when it brings that in, it's actually bringing in abruptly. It's circulating it through that chamber. And then it is picked up by scent receptors. Remember, we said there were 125 to 200 million of those in a dog's nose. And it's identifying what the object is that is producing the scent that it smells okay now to get a little more nerdy okay there's some parts that you need to know for one thing the nostril okay the a dog's nostril is extremely uh it's it's quite quite different i'll say quite different than a human if you look at the front of your dog's nose you've got obviously you've got the two holes where the air flows in But if you look down, it's got creases, and it actually makes lobes along the lower edge of the nostril, okay? The reason your dog has those and how he uses those is if you look very closely, you'll often see moisture in that area, okay? Moisture is very important to being able to detect scent, and we'll talk about that when we get to scent but that's by design. Okay. The nasal chamber cavity has mucus in it. And as your dog sits there, that area of the nose is lubricated and it adds moisture to scent. Okay. So that's, so let's move back into the nose. Let's talk about a thing called turbinates. Okay. Turbinate is the, the word that I'm using there, T-U-R-B-I-N-A-T-E, turbinate. Turbinates are ridges inside that dog's nasal chamber that increases the surface area in there for it to be able to detect scent. Okay, so I want you to think about it like this. When I was a kid and growing up around hunting and things like that, rifle barrels were smooth. Okay, they were, they were round and they were smooth across the outside. About 10 to 15 years ago, we started seeing rifle barrels become fluted on the outside. Okay, the reason rifle manufacturers flute the outside of a rifle barrel is to increase the surface area so that barrel can cool down faster. Okay, so... When we transfer back over to the interior of a dog's nose, the reason they have ridges inside their nose called turbinates is to increase the surface area where scent receptors can exist. People don't have as many turbinates inside their nasal chamber as a dog. God crunched them all together and increased that surface area so that they could smell more. Okay, that's really what we're breaking it down to. More surface area, more uh, scent receptors are capable of being in that that confined space. And it increases their ability to smell. There's another thing called a filtrum. Filtrum is a lateral crease that goes from the tip of the nose. We're, we're on the exterior part here goes from the tip of the nose and then it looks like a crease in your dog's lips and it goes down to the the very leading edge of the lip right there and there's a that's a crease and that crease is there by design okay that crease is there to gather scent particles and keep them available in front of the dog's nose so that it can be taken into the olfactory senses Mucus will keep those areas hydrated again, but basically that's a, a, a scent collector, okay? That's that's the, the place where they are collecting scent and keeping it available to their nose. So once it gets inside the nose, it's, it's wrapping around in there, it's hitting those turbinates, it's determining what it's smelling, hitting those scent receptors, and a dog's ability to scent is based this is very basic but that is how your dog's nose is working now i'll i'll go a little bit farther with the the ability of this nose and some of the things that are in there um i want to talk to you a little bit about uh uh, the scent chamber i want to talk to you about a duct it's a, a long word, but basically what it is, it's a duck that comes from the nasal chamber down into the mouth. So scenting and tasting are very similar, very closely related in our senses and also in your dog's senses. So a dog is actually capable of tasting scent. And I want to talk about that a little bit. If you hunt in the West, the Southwest, I've seen this. You will often see dogs licking rocks, okay? They'll lick rocks. You don't see that much in the east, and there's a reason for that. But a dog will lick rocks when it's trying to find scent. There's a couple reasons why he's doing that. For one thing, he is bringing that in to his mouth along the uh, the, the, the nasal plane there, the underside of it. It's being absorbed into the duct. He can actually taste that scent. The other reason is he's trying to add moisture to that scent to make it more detectable to his nose. Now, I said you don't see that in the east much or in the northwest because our ground isn't as dry. It's just not as dry as what the southwest is. Every place has its own challenges, but moisture is... To regenerate or keep scent alive in the East is not as prevalent or needed as it is in the arid conditions of the Southwest of the United States. So that's why you'll see a dog licking. They're trying to taste the scent, but they're also trying to rehydrate it so that it's available to their olfactory senses. All right. So that's how your dog's nose is working. And then he's transferring all that information, okay? All those nerve receptors are collecting all that, all those scent receptors, those cells are communicating with your dog's brain, which is almost dedicated, almost 80% dedicated to his sense of smell. All right. So it gets processed right there. And then if he has that prey drive, boom, he's gonna be able to determine what that, that scent is, and he's going to have a desire to follow that scent. So that's what's going on with your dog's nose when he's out there sniffing around. Now, why is that important for you to understand? Well, I think it's the most important thing that you, you need to know because without the nose, as our friend Gary Robertson says, there's a lot of things that have to happen on that track before they ever bring that game to tree or to a bay. He has to be able to follow that. He can't do that without a developed olfactory and the prey drive to follow that. The next ingredient, the next ingredient that we need to talk about is scent. I think a lot of times people misunderstand what scent actually is. And I'm not trying to make this a biology class or a a technical technical talk about uh, chemistry or anything like that but we have to understand how these things work and if if I can give you a little bit of information and then you can see it as you're out there hunting your hound it will make you a better houndsman it will make you a better dog trainer because now you can speak the common language with that hound now when you see something you'll maybe be able to understand why things are happening the way they're happening and i'm not here to discredit the old time houndsmen. okay um those old time houndsmen didn't have the scent or the science that we have in 2020 it just wasn't there so they learned it in the absence of science. They may not have had all the technical terms. They may not have understood everything that was going on, but simply by being out there, hunting hard, paying attention to their hounds, they developed theories about scent that are still true today. And I'll give you an example of that. So when I was about 15 years old, and I had I didn't have my driver's license yet, We were out coon hunting and I was with an older gentleman who had been hunting for several years and, and was gracious enough to put up with a 15 year old kid and his pup to take him out coon hunting. So we're driving down the road and a raccoon runs across the road in front of the truck. Well, I've got a pup in the box and I'm like, yes, here we go. This is better than me turning a coon loose, you know, or, or, or putting a drag out or anything else this is a setup situation it's perfect and i'm like stop the truck stop the truck i want to turn my pup loose and the older guy older gentleman said we're going to go up the road we're going to turn around at the next intersection we're going to come back here and we're going to wait for five minutes before we turn your pup out and i'm like what It's going to be gone. The scent's going to be gone. How am I ever going to do this? You know, I've got a perfect opportunity for my pup right here. Let's turn loose. He's like, be patient. Your pup won't be able to run that track if I slam on the brakes right here and throw him out there. So we went up the road. We did that. And I tried this before, okay? Never understood why I couldn't do it because I was 15. Should have known how to do it because I thought I knew everything. But for some reason, my my pup could never run that track. Well, following this older hunter's advice, we went up, we turned around, we waited, took the pup out there on a leash, right to the spot, had the right direction, waited until the pup was sure that he had that that uh, the whole scent picture all spelled out in his mind, turned my pup loose, he took off, he ran the track. So that's an example, and I'll talk about why that is here in a second, but that's an example of why you need to understand what is going on with scent. In our haste, in our enthusiasm, we think, throw the dogs out. Well, sometimes that's not always the best measure, and sometimes it's more uh, devastating to a young dog than being a little bit patient and listening. But that's also an example of how the old-timers, this guy didn't have any education in scenting. I, I was fortunate. You know, I went to, I don't know how many hours of training we went through. You know, I trained with the the Royal Canadian Mounted Police who are renowned worldwide for their dogs. I, I trained with uh, the German Federal Police and their tracking dogs and and different, I mean, I was fortunate to have the education to go along with experience. This guy just had experience, and he had figured it all out on his own. What a, How cool is that? You know, the Lee brothers in the South Southwest developed theories about scent and and how they determined what a dog was doing. They didn't have the science behind that when they start you know when they were hunting, when they were just starting out. They learned all of that stuff through trial and error, but they were, they were objective to it all and they, they took it all in and they processed it and they figured things out. So kudos to the old timers. What I'm trying to do is accelerate our understanding of what's going on so that we don't have to wait 20 or 30 years to understand what's going on with the dog's nose. So let's get into this next ingredient of our scent stew and that is the main ingredient, the scent itself. A lot of misunderstanding out there. There's a lot of thoughts that that uh, f- footprints or foot traffic is what leaves scent behind. Well, it, there is some, but it's pretty minute. A coon, a bear, a lion walk on their feet every day. Um, it, there isn't a whole lot of transfer there on a dry track uh, in or even into the mud from an actual footprint. Scent is a living organism. I want you to think about it as a living organism. It's a cell. It's a shed cell from the body that is is interacting with its environment. Okay, so let's try to paint a picture of that. As a person or an animal moves across the landscape... It is losing around 50 cells per minute. I'm sorry, 50 million cells per minute. 50 million cells per minute. They're coming off. It's coming out of their nose as they exhale. It's coming off their body as they brush up against things. Uh, they are just naturally shedding cells all the time. As that cell lands in, the, in its environment on the landscape, it has to interact with that. If it, and how it interacts with that determines your dog's ability to be able to smell it. So let's talk about the different ways that scent interacts with its environment real quickly here. Okay, as you're walking along and the cells are coming off of you, It's like that seventy-two Nova that needs a valve job. That's burning oil in front of you, going down the road. Okay, it stinks. You can see the exhaust coming out of it, and um, you can see the oil burning, and it's leaving a plume behind it. Okay, it's coming in through your air conditioning, and it takes, and you can smell it. It's like, man, I, I wonder how many, I wonder how many quarts per mile that guy gets. You know? Well, if you could see your body, and they're microscopic, but if you could see the cells coming off of your body, you're doing the same thing, and an animal is doing the same thing as it walks through its environment. It's leaving this scent trail behind it. It's coming out of their hair, it's coming off their skin. If they stop and they scratch, if they brush up against a tree, uh, walking through tall grass, all those sort of things are causing these cells to come off this animal, placing them on the landscape, and now it has to interact there. Okay, so as an animal walks through uh, across a landscape, and we'll talk about difference in the landscapes and how it interacts if that area that they're walking is shaded the scent is going to survive in a way that your dog can smell it longer okay this is just going to be real broad and then i'll get more tactical if it walks across a landscape that is extremely sunny then the cell dehydrates quicker and it's going to be less available for your dog to smell it. So, as we think about this, let's think about where we hunt, okay? If I'm hunting on the south side of a a ridge or a mountain range that gets a lot of sun exposure, you start a track, you're in the bottom, Shaded by trees, vegetation, things like that. It's low ground. Now your dog can smell that pretty easily. As he moves it up on the south side of that slope that's exposed to the sun, scenting conditions may become more difficult. As he moves back into the shade, shaded areas, he may be able to track better. As he moves back into water, a wet area your dog's ability to trail are going to increase should increase as he moves back out in the sun starts to dry up again now let's talk about that scent itself it's interacting with also with the bacteria in the ground all right so A lot of people will say, "I've heard, I've heard conversations like this." Okay, man, the leaves started falling, and all of a sudden, my dog acts like he can't track. Okay, well, that could be. He can still track, but the first time that you take him into the fall woods, as that starts to transition to uh, different leaf comp- decomposition, fungus in the woods, things like that. The scent hasn't changed. It's just been infiltrated and, it, and it, it smells different because now your dog's trying to process decomposing leaves, excessive moisture, um, you know, those sort of things at this change of the seasons. Same way with going into the spring. You know, they've got it figured out. You've hunted the dog all winter long. They know that an oak leaf with coon scent on it they know what that smells like and now all of a sudden we're getting getting into the spring bloom things are coming back to life bacteria spores mold spores all this other stuff is really coming on strong and it just presents a new challenge to the dog and his ability to scent keep hunting the dog he'll be fine be patient with him there's no need to rush in there there's no reason for you to to become discouraged if he's got the drive, the prey drive. Remember, we keep going back that word, prey drive, to pursue game. He will figure it out. Now, you may need to get in there and help him out a little bit and give him some encouragement, but patience is the key. We can't control that. We can't control uh, uh, how much moisture we get or you know decomposition in the woods. But one thing that we can be here is a leader for in this situation for our dogs and give them encouragement to figure it out and be patient be patient so some of the environmental factors that are going to affect scent as they come off of this living being um, man ground temperature you wouldn't believe how many micro uh, micro meteorological situations there are in the first six feet from ground level up the first six feet and and test me on this Go out with with a thermometer and measure ground temperature, and then measure ground temperature twelve inches above the ground, and then measure at three feet above the ground, and measure at four feet above the ground, and six feet. You will find an unbelievable difference in those different temperatures at those levels. So what does that mean to scent? Okay. So anytime you have micro environments like that, it's called micrometeorology, meteorology, uh, with our weather at that, that in short amount of distance, if I stand out there and I try to test the temperature or figure out what's going on at, at arm's length, at eye level, I have no idea what's going on at ground level. It's that much different. We're talking about 105 degrees at the ground level, and 80 degrees at eye level. I mean, it can be that extreme. And in those micro environments between there, there's air currents moving. So, for us to be able to think that we can we can figure things out at our eye level and looking at the trees and figuring out what's going on with the wind, it's impossible. Okay. Scent is so microscopic, you can't see it, but your dog's nose at 200 million scent receptors is capable of figuring that out, okay? The other thing is air currents, and, and we talked about the micro the micro environments there, different air currents, all that, but can you imagine... Can, What's happening 30 feet above the ground or 40 feet above the ground where a coon is sitting or a squirrel is sitting or a bear is sitting? What's going on there? Well, I will tell you that unless you have a way of measuring air currents, you really don't know. So you have to watch your dog. Have you ever walked into a tree and you've got that one dog that always sits up on the hillside? It's like, well, he's looking at him. Well, he might be looking at the game. He might understand that. But I've also seen dogs in the middle of the night where there's no way they could see a a raccoon sitting 40 feet up in a tree, but they're treeing on their hind legs 40 feet up the hill. That's because that's a place where he can smell it. Now, is that acceptable for a competition coon hunter? No, it's not. Is it acceptable for... A guy that just wants to go out and uh, pleasure these dogs possibly uh, it's not acceptable for me necessarily. I like a dog to be a little more accurate that than that and and part of that drive and the brains that dog has he's gonna figure out that hey, I can smell it here I'm, a, I'm you know I've narrowed it down and here it is it's in this tree. dog sitting 40 feet up the bank and treeing up into midair. That's not going to get you plus points in a in a competition hunt. So we expect a little more accuracy than that. But a dog's capable of doing that, and and if you let him keep doing that, that's going to be good enough. If if you don't do your part to narrow that down a little bit, you're going to have that type of a tree dog. But here's something you can do. So I use a wind detector, and bow hunters have used them for years. Archery deer hunters. Elk hunters have used these for years. It's a little bottle. It's got the flip top on it. Shake it up, squeeze it, and these little microscopic particles go floating out in the air. And you can see which way your scent is theoretically going. Okay. Well, in order to really understand that, instead of sitting there and squirting it up in the air over your head, you should be doing that lower, closer to the ground to see what's happening there. Okay. That's one thing you can do you got to know why you need to do that. A dog's natural scent profile, the place where he's going to look for scent naturally, is approximately 45 degree angle down from his body plane. So if you go from the base of his tail to his shoulders, draw a straight line, and then that dog's head is canned down 45 degrees, that is where he wants to look for scent. Okay, if you see a dog with his nose buried in the leaves or in the in the dirt looking for scent, it's because he he can't find it at his natural 45 degree angle. A smart dog knows that scent, he's looking for that scent on the ground. Now, what if the scent and we'll talk about this, what if the scent is suspended above his head? You've you've got to have a dog with some intelligence here. Okay, that's important too. That's another ingredient that we've got to have. But we're talking about scent right now. Brains and dogs is a whole different different uh, topic and that's a breeding topic that we we need to have some talk about sometime. So, as a dog is looking for that scent down there at its natural, you need to know what the air currents are doing there. Another thing that's going to affect scenting ability is humidity humidity okay humidity we all uh, I know some people that don't understand humidity <laughs> they live in places that you don't have any uh, but in the east and and uh, east of the Mississippi River and the south we understand what humidity is but the thing we don't understand is how it affects a dog's ability to scent Scent is so microscopic that it can become suspended in the air on high humidity days. It actually floats up there, okay? It just kind of floats along. It can float up there for hundreds of yards on a still day, you know, just a slight little air current just floated out there, maybe three feet above your dog's head. He's never going to find that. He'll never know it's there. And remember, we got to back up, because as a, a a person or a creature moves through its environment, it is actually pluming up off of the body. You know, it's not down there in that eight to ten inch area off the ground where that that dog naturally wants to look for it. It's being plumed up behind them, and on high humidity days or nights. It is slower to settle to the ground. It's probably one of the reasons why that pup can't run that track when you see it cross the road. The scent simply has not settled down to where it naturally wants to find it. So let's take this all this back to hunting scenarios and talk about a couple things that I've seen and. uh, I'm not trying to poke fun at anybody because that's not the purpose of this uh, podcast, but there are some things that are a little bit humorous that people have developed uh, in their thought processes here of why things are happening the way they're happening. And I'll try to answer some questions that I've also gotten. All right, so uh, every year this time of year, The persimmons come on the trees here in our part of the world. Okay, and uh, uh, coon hunters have a heck of a time with dogs and slick tree on persimmon trees. And from that slick tree comes all sorts of questions and all sorts of theories and all sorts of misinformation and all sorts of pickle barrel wisdom and all this other stuff of why their dogs are slick treeing on persimmon trees. And as we get past the persimmon season, then we'll go into the same thing with acorns, you know, oak trees. Coons will go up into oak trees and they'll feed and they'll but I've heard everything from the persimmon pulp gets on their feet and they can't smell it leaving. And, and when a person, when a, uh, when a coon eats persimmon, it interacts with the body and it it eliminates their scent. And I mean, just go to any social media site and uh, that's related to hounds and, and watch this now. I'm glad that people are trying to figure it out. That means that they are, they are in tune with what's going on and they're trying to process information that they're seeing and develop a theory to come up with a reason that this is happening. Well, here is why it's happening. And this is based on science. I'm only going to give you the facts. I'm not going to give you my opinion. My opinion is just like everybody else's, but this is based on facts. All right, as a coon goes up, above the ground, and sits up there and feeds, and he's trying to uh, get the winter fat on. I mean, they love those persimmons. They're going to eat them. You'll find find scat along the creeks and on logs and stuff with persimmon seeds in them. You know, these coons are eating a lot of persimmons this time of year. The reason your dog can't smell it or a slick train is not because... They can't smell the coon going away. It's because as a coon sits up in that tree and he eats two or three pounds of persimmons up there, his body is shedding those cells that are scent that are coming off its body and it is very concentrated under that tree. Okay. It's concentrated right there. For the last 11 months of the year, when your hound smelled that much concentration of scent under a tree, it treed there. It knew there was a coon there. a brain was telling it that there was a coon there. Okay. There is so much scent there that it's more concentrated than the track leading away after the coon had left. All right. Does that make sense? Huge concentration of scent right here. He's been the coon's been sitting up there, it's been eaten. The concentration of scent is pooled up that's another term, scent pool. It's pooled up around the tree, and for his whole life, or the at least the last 11 months of it, if it came across a tree that had that much scent pooled up under it, it treed and it was right. But in this particular case, it sat up in that tree. And now your dog is fooled into thinking that coon is still up there. And it missed the track that was leaving. Had nothing to do with persimmon pulp on its feet. Like we said, foot foot traffic and transfer is very minimal, uh, almost non-existent. Had nothing to do with that. Another thing that I've heard is that when a or a lion or a bear is scared it can pick up its scent just pick it up it's magic all of a sudden they can decide i'm not going to smell it you know i'm not going to let anything smell me anymore so it picks up its scent well it, that is biologically impossible but you'll get old timers that say well i've seen it I've, I've seen what it was well i know you have But I'm saying that what you saw was not what you think it was. It wasn't—an animal can simply not do that, okay? We used to think the earth was flat, too. Uh, There's still people that believe in Bigfoot. Just because we think we saw something doesn't make it true. So why does a coon, his ability to uh, not be— you know, a dog's inability to run a certain coon that we see or a lion or a bear back up, go back to that scent pluming theory that I gave you and overlay that with the actual scientific fact that the scent simply is not there for that dog to smell it yet. Folks, this is a really complicated issue. Um, it's not, it's not really complicated. It's just, uh, very technical technical and I've just scratched the surface on scenting the dog's ability to scent uh how scent interacts with its environment all those things and I I just simply can't cover it all in a single podcast so I want to I want to encourage you to pick up a couple books and you can just have them as reference books these books are very technical um and um, um, they'll put you to sleep if if you're not really into this. But uh, the first one is a real simple book. It's a it's actually a booklet, and it's called "Scent and the Scenting Dog" by William Syrituck. A lot of lot of diagrams. Uh, it really breaks this thing down to scent and the scenting dog, uh, talks about the, the dog's nose, but that's, a, that's a good little book to have around for you to look back on as you're, uh, observing your dogs doing different things. And, um, if you read this book and then you hunt, you'll start to understand some of this stuff. You'll start to speak the language as Primo's game calls, uh, uh, calls it you'll, you'll be communicating with your dog at a different level. So Scent and the Scenting Dog by William G. Syratuck. And then a little more technical book. Um, Again, it's um, written by scientists, but it's called Scent, Training to Track, Search, and Rescue. It is a search and rescue type thing, but it really breaks this down so that you get a better understanding of the dog's anatomy, how that nose works. You're going to see a lot of big words in there that uh, uh, you may or may not be able to to pronounce. I struggle with them as well, even though I've heard a lot of people use them for years. But uh, it so this is this book is called Scent Training to Track, Search and Rescue by Milo Persol and uh, Hugo Verbruggen easy for for him to say his name is almost as as complicated as some of the scientific terms in this book so two books for you Scent and the scenting dog and scent training to track search and rescue two great books it ought to be on every houndsman's shelf you ought to have a a a basic understanding of of what they're trying to say there's some more modern science that's already come out um, since these two books were published, but these will give you a very good place to start and an understanding of what's going on there. And, uh, it'll make you a better houndsman. Seriously, it will. It'll make you a better dog trainer. It'll make you a better houndsman. Everything we're doing with these hounds is based first and foremost on that olfactory sense, their ability to scent. Don't pass up the opportunity to expand your knowledge. Um, hunting stories are great to to share with your, your buddies and stuff like that, but there are better places to uh, get information about what's actually going on with scent and the scenting dog than uh, off Facebook or, or social media. And again... Sent training to track search and rescue, and the other booklet is scent and the scenting dog. They are going to be the episode cover photos, so you'll have all the information right there. And then just a really simple little thing that you can buy to help you kind of start picturing. I'm real good. I'm I'm real big on having visualization uh, so that I understand things a visual learner. Your dog is a visual learner too, by the way. Um, they learn by watching that's a whole different podcast, but visual learner. So another thing I would encourage you to get is, is a, uh, wind detector that is available for archery hunters. And I picked up one at the, at the farm store. Uh, it's a dead down wind uh, wind detector. It's full of a bunch of little powder. You just shake it up, puff it in the air and you can see which way, uh, the wind currents are moving. So real basic stuff. And then one thing I would encourage you to do is, is if you really want to get down on the, and get technical, when we were, when we were canine handlers, we had to log every track. Okay. We had to put in the date, the time, the weather conditions, including humidity and barometric pressure and temperatures. We had to log all that stuff. We we did that so that we could develop a baseline and expand our understanding of when our dogs could track optimally and when they struggled. And you can't do that if you're going, well, it was kind of rainy last week. Uh, it was kind of sunny, maybe that one day. Uh, the snow conditions were this, I think. I don't remember for exactly, because what did you have for lunch? Oh, I can't remember that. Uh, but if you will log those things, and you can do it with stickbowoutdoors.com has the hound log, uh, you can you can go through and log every single hunt using that. And get a better understanding. We're all about preserve, protect, and promote around here. We don't want you to be frustrated. A lot of times this stuff can be frustrating for you. And we want to talk to you. I wanted to spend some time talking to you uninterrupted about scent and the scenting dog. And get some information. Dispel some rumors out there. And uh, I'm glad that you guys tuned in with me today. Veterans Day. And I'll selfishly promote United States Marine Corps birthday, November 10th, Veterans Day the 11th, Marine Corps birthday the 10th. Pray for our country and our leaders. God bless the United States of America. You follow your hounds. I'll follow mine.